new episode of Entertainment Geekly, your guide to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and awesome. I'm Darren Franich, and with me, as always, on the phone from the United States of Jensonia, Entertainment Weekly's Jeff Jensen. You know, my favorite part of our podcast is this clever little thing that you're going to come up with me for each week. But yes, I am in the United States of Jensonia in my little bunker somewhere on an island uh, um, somewhere. A bunker on an island somewhere in space. <laughs> Jeff, always, always good to have you here, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. And you know, uh, something arrived. I always, I always love presents. So if anyone wants to send me a present, you know, please do. Uh, care of uh, Jensonia uh, Island somewhere in the Pacific somewhere. And um, today I opened my door and there's this huge, heavy box right outside the door. And I'm going like, what is this? And uh, it's, it's very heavy. And, uh, and, and I open it up and it's something called, Darren, the Harry Potter Wizards Collection. Ooh. What, is this uh, the, the, the Wizards Collection? Is this like a series of, of wizarding devices? Well, okay. Well, way to raise the bar for coolness to a level that this will not meet. But it's cool. Um, it's called the Harry Potter Wizards Collection, and it's basically kind of like the ultimate Harry Potter film DVD collection. Oh, I see. This this has like all all eight films uh, uh, stuffed with extras and, and and things like that. Then right, but you know, and and, and while I do admire the Harry Potter films. Um, some more than others. Um, that the, the films may not be the best part of this of this thing, um, because what they've done is they've taken they've created this cool box that's like filled with all of these hidden compartments, and you have to like you know press things just right and hidden compartments pop out and there are shelves that you pull out that contain like the films but booklets and toys and memorabilia and it is quite possibly the coolest piece of dvd packaging that um one of them i've ever seen i'm sure it costs like a billion dollars or or just a couple hundred I, i don't know how much it costs but it's really cool. Um, they sent it to me for review in the magazine, and I'll do like a, a fuller review in the coming weeks. But I think you just got it. It's really cool. <laughs> this is like that 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 great uh, Calvin and Hobbes strip when Calvin orders the the beanie with a little like flying thing on top, is utterly disinterested by it, but then says, "But look at this great box, man! Think of all the things we can do with this cardboard box." Uh, really? I mean, I just think I might just take out all the films and just use the box for, you know, like, uh, some, for, for other things. Uh, yeah, it's, it's cool. The films are, uh, are, are a mixed bag, but boy, that box, let me, let me tell box, you. It was it's worth everything, yeah. Uh, well, Jeff, uh, we're, we're sort of reaching uh, an interesting period in pop culture right now. It's interesting because there's not really a lot happening. You know, we're, we're in the sort of... <laughs> We're in the sort of dog days of, of August right now. Uh, We're talking about my mail is how yeah, interesting. We are, I- listeners, we, we are talking about Jeff Jensen's mail right now because, uh, you know, you know, I mean, uh, all of the kind of big summer movies uh, are, are have, have opened now. Uh, we're not quite into the fall TV season yet. Uh, you know, the you know, I- except for a few kind of scattered releases, there aren't a lot of big video games being released right now. Uh, so, you, you know, we kind of thought that uh, this would be a good week to uh, talk a little bit about what, what we were obsessed with this summer. Um, and uh, yeah, Jeff... And, uh, to, to, to that end, I mean, 
one of the things I think about summer is, uh, you know, there's always wonderful summertime programming, especially at the, at the movie theaters. But I don't know about you, Darren, but I often use the summer as, as, as a means to sort of like catch up on, on something that I've like deferred for, for, for many, many months, like a TV series that I didn't watch by catch up on DVD or reread an old book or, or something that I haven't read in a long time or, just finally experiment with you know with, with, with something or, or take a chance on something that I, I didn't have time to do earlier. So. Absolutely, you know the it's 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 a sort of like classic time. You know it's the old you know now is the time to catch up on the wire or you know finally read War and Peace or uh, you know maybe do something that's not reading War and Peace like uh, pretty much <laughs> any other thing uh, imaginable. Um, <laughs> Anything but, but War and Peace. <laughs> Jeff, uh, uh, what, what, what was your kind of big summer obsession or you know what was your big kind of catch? up uh this year well i i had a couple some of which we'll talk about um as we move into more into the fall and 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 others that we will talk uh we will not talk about and this is all we'll ever talk about them um (laughs) which is to say that one of those things was grim i kind of like got caught up on 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 grim and became a fan of that show and i think that in the coming weeks and into the fall we'll talk about grim some more i caught up on damages um, which was a show that I watched in its first two seasons, then kind of like for some reason checked out of Damages. I, I don't know why, but um, but 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 we, we we caught up with 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 seasons three and four, which I thought were great, and now we're really enjoying season five. And we, I mean, uh, my wife and I, mm-hmm. um, uh, Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl, um, best-selling New York Times number one mystery novel. Uh, was an obsession for mine in the middle part of July, and it was great to see a, a former EW colleague uh, uh, do really well. Uh, that, that book was was really cool. And, G. And Flynn, it, whoop whoop, holding it down for the home team. Former former TV critic here, doing great by herself. Right, and, and and a book that 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 Darren I think does merit some serious geeking out on our part if and when you should ever read it because mm-hmm. it's really really great. Um, I think it's a book to have serious opinions about whether you like or not and some of the things that happen in it, but, um, but totally worth it. Mm-hmm. I'll have to put but, it on my, on my reading list. After War and Peace, unfortunately. After War and Peace. <laughs> but, you know, um, the thing that has really electrified my imagination and I've been, become so obsessive about, and, and I, I, real, I, I think I know why, but we'll, we'll probably explore that the more we talk, but the thing that has dominated my imagination for the past several weeks was rereading from issue one to the very end the complete Sandman saga by by Neil Gaiman. Uh, uh, such I mean, like to me, just maybe the great sort of sustained uh, like you know narrative cycle. Uh, you know, like like uh, I I still remember the first time that I read that. And just, I mean, addictively going through, like, you know, volume one, volume two, volume three, all the way to the end. Um, was this the first time that you read it in, in you know, quite a while? Was, was, was this your kind of first return to the series? Yeah, I mean, it was my first return to the series in quite a while. And I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it was, we talked about this, this idea before on the podcast about sort of the, the, the 90s era of comics being kind of very dark, grim and gritty, but also a period of not just grim and gritty as defined by sort of the, the vigilante extremism of 
Batman, Punisher uh, comics, uh, and, and, and post-Watchmen Rorschach comics, but also kind of like dark uh, in the sense of uh, the fantasy of the time, the fantasy horror uh, became very popular, very dark fantasy horror became popular at this time as a result of sort of the post-Alan Moore Swamp Thing era, right? Mm -hmm. And when Sandman first launched, I felt like there were a lot of comics that, that felt like it. Um, Neil Gaiman wasn't necessarily a, a, a superstar brand name writer at that time at all. Um, and so Sandman arrives in the way it's drawn by Sam Keith, um, and, uh, and just the whole dark fantasy of it all and the, and the horror elements of it all, it kind of sat on the shelf and it seemed to sort of be indistinguishable from a lot of other comics of its kind, both by mainstream and indie publishers. And I just kind of felt like I rejected it. It felt like just more of the same, and I didn't give, give it really a chance. Um, some friends of mine in the mid-90s exposed me to some of the, the early collections as it sort of sort of gaining the rep, uh, reputation, the, 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 the first set, um, um, the Doll's House collection also, and I, I started having this sort of begrudging admiration for it, like, yeah, there's something going on here. But it really wasn't until Brief Lives, um, the, sort of one of the later storylines of, of, uh, in, in the Sandman collection, where, 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 where Morpheus, the, shape, the Lord of Dreams, goes on this sort of like cross-country trek with his sister Delirium to, to find their long-lost brother Destruction and sort of the, uh, the events that happen at the end of that saga that set in motion the, the final arc of the Sandman series. Um, for me, that, that storyline, the Brief Live storyline, like captured my imagination and was one of the best story arcs I had read in the 90s and kind of like changed the way I looked at the whole series and, and, and I started going back and reading it all. But since then, since the culmination, the end of, of Sandman in the, in the, in the, in the, I think around 1996, I haven't revisited the series at all. Mm -hmm. And so I've always sort of made it this point that I wanted to go back and reread the thing from issue one to the end as a complete saga. And, you know, since that time, it has gained this amazing larger-than-life, you know, reputation uh, as maybe one, you know, maybe the greatest ongoing comic book series ever, you know, as a sustained singular work from beginning to end. And as much as I had great admi admiration for it, I always kind of felt like that, that, that hype was, was hype. Was, it, felt, it felt like a, a little bit of an overstatement. But after reading it from beginning to end, issue one to end, I have to agree. I mean, it's, just, <laughs> uh, uh, it's pretty a sensational, sensational, wonderfully sustained piece of literature. Well, and, and this is what I wanted to ask you, Jeff, is that, so, I mean, like, uh, you know, what was your process of reading it like? I mean, were you, uh, you know, were you sort of like, you know, going through it, uh, you know, trying to kind of like follow a certain pattern or were you, were you just kind of blasting right through it, you know, addictively reading one volume into the next? A little bit of both, but I mean, I, I started from the, the first volume and r read it in sequence, in series. And, you know, um, the thing that mystifies me even still about the ending of, of, of Sandman. So, hey, spoilers, folks, if you haven't read Sandman, we're now going to have to spoil some stuff. Is, you know, Sandman ends with this emotional, elect you know, a moment where... Um, 
Sandman is, is, is killed, or at least this incarnation of Dream is, is destroyed by um, the Furies, the kindly ones, um, who have permission to destroy him because Morpheus, for altruistic reasons, um, killed his, own, his son, Orpheus. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but one of the big mysteries that you're left with about Dream is that there's a fundamental mental question that death, his sister death, challenges him on in that that issue, which is, like, was his death inevitable, or did he almost set himself up for it? Well, and, and, you know, uh, I'm actually kind of glad that they were skipping uh, right to this sort of final question, because it's something that really, when you read that last big story arc, The Kindly Ones, it really sort of reverberates both through what remains of the series afterwards, and also kind of really in your entire understanding of Dream's story arc throughout the entire series. And it's interesting because, now, uh, remind me here, it all kind of comes back around to the fact that as long as he stays in his realm, he will be safe. But then he makes the decision that, oh boy, this is this is kind of calling up into in, in my memory, the elf girl who used to work for him calls for him, right? Isn't that kind of the final kind of, the, the, the final thing that uh, leads to his, his death? It's a fairy girl, and her name is Nuala, yes. yes. Um, elf, fairy, fairy, elf. <laughs> one of the wonderful things about that ser- about about the, that final that that, that storyline that we're talking about, it is not the final arc in the Sandman series, but this is this this is the arc called the Kindly Ones, and then there's one more arc after that called the Wake. But in the Kindly Ones, that ends with Morpheus's death. Yes, um, a a. A seemingly complicated, although ultimately pretty kind of simple conspiracy plot, um, like leads to um, Morpheus's death. Um, but various characters, there's many, many characters doing many, many things um, in this storyline, and, and they're kind of culminations of things that have been building for years in the story. And they make some crucial decisions that contribute to Dream's vulnerability mm-hmm. that ultimately makes him, uh, um, uh, 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 you know, he's a very incredibly powerful entity and, and extremely hard to kill, especially in his own domain. But yes, contributing to the, this, the, the, this, his ultimate demise is that Nuala, who had been granted um, a, a gift for her faithful service to Dream, and this, this gift was this pendant, which if she kind of wished upon it, she could summon Dream, and Dream would grant her a wish. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, a, at one point, um, Nuala, who has now returned to the fairy kingdom, um, has been um, told that Dream is basically dead meat, that the kindly ones have invaded the realm of Dream, and they're coming for him, and they're going to destroy him. And so she gets it in her head that maybe she could save her master and, and, and her old master and someone that she really, really loves by basically summoning, using this, this, this pendant to sort of summon Dream, take him out of his realm, and save him from what's, what, what she's been told is imminent destruction. Mm-hmm. And, 
And what, what, what he ultimately reveals to her is that, no, Nuala, by taking me out of my realm, you have, you have empowered the, the kindly ones even more because without me there to defend it, they can wreak even more havoc upon it. And hurting the realm hurts me because they're like, you know, symbiotically linked or one and the same, if you will, and, um, and makes her, uh, him incredibly vulnerable to death. When he returns to um, his kingdom, now this is actually a, a really interesting point of debate, which is that when he returns to his realm and he basically squares off against the kindly ones, uh, when he realizes that there's just absolutely no choice, he, he had hoped that maybe some other solution could be found. But when he realizes that there's just no other choice, he's going to have to confront them and either fight them or let them kill him. Um, um, he kind of he, he kind of goes to them, and at that point his sister Death shows up. And so one of the questions I kind I was left with at the end of the Kindly Ones was, you know, you know, Sandman has basically kind of taken off all of his vestments of power. He basically submits himself to the Kindly Ones for their judgment and for their punishment. And then all of a sudden Death arrives and basically tells the Kindly Ones to get lost. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and and and, she, and 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 they kind of disappear, but then death claims dream, and then this iteration of dream fades away. And in fact, an issue earlier, we see the fates who have snipped like uh, uh, Morpheus's timeline, but they they comment like he doesn't really know he's dead yet, is does he? You know, and yet mm-hmm. he still goes on. And sometimes it takes a while for for people to realize this. They say. So the, the, one of the mysteries that I'm, one of the additional mysteries I'm left with at the end of the Kindly Ones is, did the Kindly Ones really kill Dream? Did Dream effectively commit suicide? Mm-hmm. Did Death take Dream? Because that's what Death, what, that's what Dream wanted ultimately. Like, um, uh, it, it, it's a wonderful am, ambiguity there at the end and, of the and, and it's funny too, because what it conjures up is something that I think is so true of the whole series in a way, because... It, to me, the most impressive thing about it, and the reason why I think I kind of hold it over a lot of similarly really fantastic long-form comic book series from that era. I mean, like, you know, like, I, I was also a huge fan of Preacher, and, like, to me, that has a lot of similar elements just in terms of, like, how it manages to really sustain an interesting story with interesting tangents along the way over the course of years. But to me, what's good about Sandman is you're dealing with these characters who aren't even really gods in a way. They're almost concepts. I mean, the, you know, Dream and his siblings, what is it, Dream and Death and Delirium and Desire, and these figures that, I mean, seem like they should just be, like, pure abstractions. Somehow, and it's most true of all in The Kindly Ones, you get this real intriguing sense of their sort of, like, their emotions and even these sort of really repressed feelings that are, are never really explicitly stated in the comic book. It just feels like... It feels like something that legitimately you can return to each time and find something new and maybe some kind of new shading that you couldn't necessarily notice before. Absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, something that Gaiman does really well with that uh, when, in the experience of reading the comic, you you feel a sense of clarity that kind of eludes you when you try to talk about it, much like a dream, mm-hmm. um, which is that... Um, the difference ultimately between entities like the Endless, 
um, dream and his siblings, which are personifications of ideas um, um, like dream, like, like destiny, like death. They are personification of these ideas that are, t- that are as old as time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But how they are different from and more powerful than, or in some cases less powerful than, um, like classical mythology. Um, because one of the things that, that, that Sandman deals with is that Morpheus regularly um, interacts with um, classical mythology gods like, you know, um, Odin and Thor and Loki, who themselves in their cultures are representat- representations and embodiments of ideas. Mm-hmm. In the context of reading Sandman, the difference between the endless and these, and, and, and these, these gods are clear. Uh, it's clear that the difference is clear. Um, kind of trying to describe it to you now is is, is it feels a little fuzzy, um, but uh, but I but that's just one of the things that makes this uh, this series so rich. Is it's so layered and and with with all these kinds of ideas. And I and one of the things that's most commented upon the series is how Gaiman sort of like scoops up. And, 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 and swallows into his creative world like just centuries and centuries of story and myth and fable and, 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 and all of that and, 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 and brings it all under sort of like dreams domain and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And, and, and hey, hey, let's not forget about Shakespeare. Shakespeare, a key Shakespeare. recurring character in The Sandman. Um, well, I, I love those stories. <laughs> like, you know, you, you find out in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Sandman that... William Shakespeare's two of his greatest plays, The Tempest and A Midsummer Night's Dream, were actually plays that were commissioned by Dream and written <laughs> for Dream um, in exchange, and he wrote those plays for him in exchange for Dream, essentially giving him the ideas that would allow him to become a uh, long-remembered uh, uh, artist and, and, and writer that has massive cultural impact. I always felt um, like, like like someone with more time on their hands than me should should have written some long essay about the fact that two of the most sort of interesting comic book narrative cycles were written by creators who became weirdly obsessed with The Tempest because... Uh, because you know the Sandman, its its final chapter is really about what you're describing. It's about the Tempest and about this sort of notion that you know that mirrors the tale of Dream. And then on the other side of the equation, you have the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which featured, I mean, featured as a character the Wizard from the Tempest, who finished the volume of the Black Dossier with a huge extended soliloquy written in kind of mock Shakespearean. Clearly. I think uh, between Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, I have to assume that The Tempest is taught much more often over in England than it is here. <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> yeah, Gaiman and Moore are interesting, I mean, because as writers, I mean, they, they, they are the superstar writers that really come out of this sort of, you know, silver, you know, our post-Silver Age comic book writers. Now, the Silver, silver Age of comics bleeding into the Marvel Age of the, of the 70s were, were um, you know, was, was driven by comic book creators, um, uh, many comic book creators who were, were, were fans. They were the first fans 
to sort of like take over the industry, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, these were these were writers who were were fans of golden age comics, um, who never gave up comics, who kind of enter into comics and start kind of like reinventing and commenting on um, uh, and, and pushing forward the comic book tropes uh, that, that 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 they got hooked on as kids. Now, now more and Gaiman come along, having been raised both on Golden Age and Silver Age, and so they're 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 post post fandom, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. And, and 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 they're now they're now recycling these stories again, but now bringing in all of this uh, all of these other like you know literary and philosophical and scientific references into the work and. You, you start seeing these comics that become comics about comics and comics about culture and uh, and I, and those are the comics that you and I were raised on and mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and yes. kind of like have yes. made us into the the crazy like you know hyperlinky thinking mm-hmm, people that we mm-hmm. are today. If I recall my my chemistry correctly, I think gold plus silver equals platinum. So I think we can call that the platinum age of of comics from now on. Right. right. I mean, I, I I I may not remember my my chemistry correctly. Well, Jeff, uh, I I I I only have two final questions about you rereading the Sandman. First of all, upon rereading it, were there any issues? Because of course, it was a series that was famous for, along with these long storylines, these really awesome little storylines that would you know usually just be these great one-offs were there any issues that stuck out to you that you'd forgotten about my second question is should ryan reynolds play dream in sandman the movie <laughs> wow um no i you know uh like again i think that where sandman uh here's the things that i loved about sandman um first and foremost even though i read that my my, my recent reread was in collected form, and I read the entire series. Um, what I appreciate even more in retrospect was, for, especially for, for fans of Sandman who took that journey, uh, that monthly journey with Gaiman and his collaborators over the years, was how hard they worked to create really rich reading experiences in each individual issue. Man, do you get your money's worth. Um, man, did you get your money's worth if you bought it as monthly stories? They work so hard to make every every issue. I mean, it, every issue is a reading experience. Single issues, you know, the 24-page stories. You can't just breeze through the, through those things in five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and there are a lot of breezy five-minute comic book reads that I love. Don't get me wrong, but these are issues that you had to sit down with, study and just with a cup of coffee and a read for about 30 minutes or an hour. And like in an era when comic book prices like just suddenly skyrocketed um, and are continuing to grow these days, I mean, I just really appreciate that work, mm-hmm. um, that desire. So that's, that's one thing I loved. And I just love the, the mystery of Dream told over time, this, this tragic character who is, you know, the victim of conspiracy but has victimized himself, who feels his responsibilities so crushing, uh, as these crushing kind of things, um, but he's so slavishly devoted to them. And, um, you know, at the end, like, did he conspire to bring about his own destruction so he could be alleviated of his burdens, or, or, or was he ultimately... 
um, a, a victim of other machinations. I love tracking that, you know, depending on when I'm going to reread it again, I'll feel differently, but I love that, that, that depth of character and just the, the overall sweep of the world. But to wrap up your, your question, um, I, I hope that Ryan Reynolds doesn't come anywhere near <laughs> um, uh, the, the Sandman character. And while I am sort of like indifferent on the issue of whether or not Sandman ever gets an adaptation, I hope that the adaptation takes the form of a long-form television series that is very true to the long-form narrative arc that, that, that Gaiman created. My, my dream, I think, would be that Pendleton Ward, whenever he decides to end <laughs> the, the great TV series Adventure Time, which I highly recommend everyone check out, my dream would be that he somehow figures out a way to make the Sandman work as an animated series. Um, but uh, I, think, I think that may be even more pie in the sky than my hopes for Hellboy 3. Um, well, good, Jeff. It's, it sounds like you're saying Sandman is, is a good beach read, then, is basically what, oh, I'm, what I'm getting from or, all of this. Or just, just, you know, just, just, just a quick airplane read. <laughs> just, 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 just a good, really kind of like, you know, toilet read. You know, that's, that's basically it. That's great. What, uh, what, are you, what have you been obsessed with this summer, uh, Darren? Jeff, nothing as highfalutin, unfortunately. I, I haven't really had, had a chance to catch up on, on my reading. Uh, I was lucky enough, uh, living here in New York, uh, Film Forum Theater had a great series on spaghetti westerns. I've always been a huge fan of Sergio Leone, but I, I, I discovered Sergio Corbucci. Apparently only men named Sergio directed spaghetti westerns. Mm, yeah. uh, great, great filmmaker, huge inspiration for for Tarantino's Django Unchained. Uh, my, my next door neighbor uh, and an office mate, Clark Collis, wrote a fantastic cover story about Doctor Who. Collis himself is a British gentleman. He was talking about Doctor Who nonstop for a few weeks there. So I finally decided to take the plunge. I'm watching the new Doctor Who starting from 2005 uh, on Netflix right now, and I'm, 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 I'm obsessed with it. I'm not that far along, but I can already tell that this is going to be... I mean, I'm, I'm obviously very late to the party on this, maybe 50 years late, but uh, it's definitely my obsession. But Jeff... Uh, Darren, Darren, just if I could interject real quick. Sure. Uh, our, our, our colleague, Mr. Collis, had similar impacts uh, on, on us because um, I've always sort of, you know... I, of course, have known about Doctor Who. I was a big fan of the Tom Baker Doctor Whos mm-hmm. of the 70s, but I have, I have just never made a point of getting into um, this new incarnation and highly acclaimed incarnation of Doctor Who. Um, but after reading Clark's story, uh, I got bit by the bug big time, and I went and bought both of the the, the, the DVD sets of the past two seasons. So I'm about to embark upon that. Journey. Oh, fantastic! Well, we, we'll definitely have to have an in-depth conversation about, about Doctor Who at some point because I'm absolutely obsessed with it. But Jeff, what I want to talk to you about is actually a different TV show, okay. a, sh- a show that I think is maybe maybe even more important to TV history than Doctor Who. Jeff, it's Ooh. it's 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 a show that's about. The human condition. It's about how we live now. Um, it's also a show that I would describe as simultaneously utopian and dystopian. Um, oh, and okay. maybe maybe even post-apocalyptic. It all kind of depends on your perspective. Um, oh, so it, must, it must be Mad Men. Uh, you know, Jeff, Mad Men is a good show. I, I, I'm certainly not going to say it's not a good show. But Jeff, the, the show that I'm talking about, I think taps into something even more primal 
in the human condition than uh, anything Mad Men has ever really achieved. Jeff, I'm talking about season 14 of CBS's Big Brother. Uh, of course. That, uh, <laughs> I can't think of a show that better fits the description that you've just kind of you know, uh, set up for us here. Yes. Wow. Big Je- Brother. Jeff, I'm, I- I- I'm a latecomer to Big Brother. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it's fair to say that until a few years ago, if I ever thought about it, I-, I would say, first of all, is that show still on? And second of all, I can't believe that our culture supports an industry that would allow a travesty like that to be on. But uh, a a very good friend of mine who had been obsessed with it for a very long time kind of gave me the down low. And what he described it as, and what I found it to be, uh, what I really found upon first watching it a few seasons ago, it's really a show that kind of takes the entire reality show concept and reduces it sort of down to its abstract bits. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, I always just assumed that it was Survivor in a household, but it's a little bit more than that. You realize that a show like Survivor, you know, they're sort of out in the wilderness and there's, you know, all this interesting sort of nature background and even like, you know, the way they're interacting has this sort of Lord of the Flies overlay to it. On Big Brother, these people are just inside of a house for two and a half months, for three months, can't do anything, they can't read, they can't check the internet. All they have to do is talk to each other and they're all competing against each other to win half a million dollars. So on a good season of the show, uh, and the three seasons that I've watched, I think have all been interesting in their own way, you're sort of just watching these people lie to everyone all of the time. And, and it, it, it becomes, I, I think, this sort of... And, you know, the, the funny thing is, this is one of those shows where I would say three-quarters of the cast at this point is always... You know, uh, our, our our colleague Annie Barrett has this sort of, like, funny uh, term for, you know, what's this week's pseudonym for they're a struggling actor? You know, they're always mobile spray tanners or, uh, you know, unemployed employed models or cocktail waitresses, a lot of luxury cocktail waitresses on right. uh, on, on uh, Big Brother. And so, you, you know, you'd expect that, you know, they would all be boring. And in some respects, they are very boring. I, I don't know if, if I'd want to talk to any of them person to person. But you get this great thing on the show where as much as CBS tries to kind of foist these narratives upon them, because the show is happening live, they're in the house right now, and the, the turnaround time on in what happens inside of the show and, you know, when it airs is very fast, you sort of get this almost, like, very real-time perspective on these people as civilization sort of fades away and whoever they were outside kind of fades away. And it becomes very compelling, I have to say. Jeff, I, I feel like I've been talking a lot and you've been silent. Do you watch Big Brother? Am I being crazy right now? Crickets. 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 <laughs> um, I do watch Big Brother. Of course I watch Big Brother. I've, I've, I've been watching Big Brother since the beginning. Um... Um, but not every se- season of Big Brother. My relationship with Big Brother was that I believe that the first season of Big Brother launched right on the heels of the the first season of Survivor, mm-hmm. maybe the second. But I just remember that you know how Survivor was this cultural phenomenon, and while not the first reality show, certainly the one that seemed to sort of just was the was the big bang of the genre and the, 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 that first season. Of Survivor it was just uh, like you know everyone was talking about it by the end, and um, 
and into the second season as well. And so against this backdrop, they were, you know, clearly, you know, you know, CBS was like, how do we follow this up? And so they were really aggressively promoting a concept which, you know, as you sort of accurately identified, like felt like um, some kind of in, uh, a different kind of incarnation or riff on Survivor Big Brother. And so I, 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 I took that bait. I moved right out of Survivor, right into Big Brother, and I liked it. From the get-go, I liked Big Brother, even though it was rejected by a lot of Survivor fans, and Big Brother has survived, but with a very small audience, a uh, smaller audience than, than, than Survivor. But, you know, and, it, and it's, been, it's evolved and refi- been refined over the years, but from the get-go, I, too, have been... Uh, just uh, absolutely riveted by the spectacle of people treating each other like crap, mm-hmm. um, and 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 specifically the the mind game and the lying of it all and the mm-hmm. forming of alliances and the betraying of alliances, which is something that you could find on a lot of reality shows. But because when you're just dealing with um, a house and people trapped in the house, and this is all they can do mm-hmm. is just basically spend the time. Talking, smoking, eating good food or eating slop, and conspiring against each other. It, it's just so accentuated. It, 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 really, it really is, is incredible. I mean, it sort of feels like, in this weird sense, they're being reduced back to caveman status, albeit, you know, sort of very well taken care of cavemen, where, yeah, yeah. The, 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 <laughs> o- the only thing they can do to amuse themselves is plot against each other. Yeah, like, I am suddenly reminded of this story. Um, 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 have you ever played the sort of, like, um, the, the, you know, the, the social game, card game, Mafia? Oh, of course, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, sometimes also known as uh, um, um, werewolves, I think. But, but, but yeah, yeah. like... Mm-hmm. There, there's different forms of it, and, and I went through a phase in my 20s where, uh, where me and my friends... We were absolutely hooked on mafia, <laughs> and um, and we would have mafia parties. So we would bring over like dozens of people, and we'd have multiple rooms of mafia games going. <laughs> and I remember one time, and this is I think maybe the last time we ever played mafia, where um, where there there was there was someone who was playing with us, and she got into it. But she also got really troubled by all of this, the lying, the deceiving, the betrayal that's going on um, within the game. And ultimately, in in the middle of like the second game that she was playing, she stood up and left like in near tears. And she said, why am I playing this game? I go to therapy to get over this stuff. <laughs> like, in real life, why am I doing it for fun? And it's so traumatized. So, so much was this game sort of like pushing on those buttons in her life. And I don't want to laugh about her issues. I mean, they were sound like they're very painful. But, I mean, but, you know, she just, she had to get out. Um, like that's what Big Brother reminds me of is Mafia the series. Well, and and I, I think it's great that you bring up Mafia because Mafia has this sort of very intriguingly set up power dynamic. And uh, uh, tell me if you played it differently, but the way that I always played it was, you know, there is the person or people who are the Mafia. Then there's the person who is the doctor, and 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 the doctor can try to save somebody. He doesn't yes. know he doesn't know who, who was attacked by the Mafia. He just tries to save someone. Then there's the policeman who tries to figure out who's who. But then, you know, then you kind of get this great moment when everyone wakes up 
and sometimes, I mean, you know, my, my move, Jeff, was always, I would always claim that I was the policeman. I would always be the first person to do that. And then, you know, like, like nine times out of, out of ten, as long as you're, you're the first person to, to establish that, then people will, will believe you. It's great because Big Brother has a very similar, intriguingly set up power dynamic that I, I think sets it apart a little bit from other competition shows, where each week in its current incarnation, there's three episodes. In one episode, uh, a new person is crowned the head of the household. Uh, and, you know, usually this, this is accomplished using, you know, there's sometimes it's a physical competition, sometimes it's a trivia competition. That person then can nominate two people to go up on the block. The next episode, there's the veto competition where people compete to gain the ability to take someone off the block. Then uh, there is the voting. And, you know, a uh, person goes home. But the great thing about this, and it's something that people, people complain a lot about the show because they say that, you know, that setup sort of means that you can literally go from zero to hero in a single week. You know, I mean, like, if, if you're head of household, then the entire house shifts around you. To me, that's why I enjoy it so much, is that even though, as on Survivor and every other competition show, there are these alliances that form and there are these sort of, uh, you know, these, these relationships that run throughout a season, you know, a single week can just radically alter everything. I mean, it feels more to me like a psychological experiment than it does, like, a sort of legitimate game show in, in any respect. Right. I, I, no, I, I, I totally agree. Um, and, uh, the, like, the, the zero to hero to zero again, like, narrative arc of the show makes it this really entertaining roller coaster. And sometimes it's, you know, part of the... the the, the tension and enjoyment when the series is at its best for me is, you know, by the time you get to the live eviction and then the new head of household competition, um, you could see very clearly what the storyline for the next week is going to be. Mm -hmm. and, and, and for me, the, the entertainment value of the show then becomes like, to what degree can that, that inevitable storyline be subverted? Yes. Um, especially at this point in the series where now, um, you know, we're starting to really winnow down the contestants, clear alliances and, 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 and rivalries are being formed. And so it's all about which camp is going to get in power. And, um, and so boring weeks are, for me are sort of defined by, you know, this week's sort of power player just driving through and slamming home their agenda um, and, uh, and it's just w without any sort of twists or, or mm -hmm. anything like that. Mm -hmm. And then, like, um, so right now, for example, this week, I think we're kind of in one of those weeks where, you know, Frank, Frank, right? Yes, Frank. Um, uh, one thing about Big Brother for me is that I never remember anyone's names until probably the very last episode. <laughs> so, um, like, they're, so sort of, they're sort of very defined by their hairstyles and how tanned they are, generally exactly. speaking. Exactly. So Frank and Boogie, who, of course, like, whose name I know because he's only been on three or four seasons, um, <laughs> and, and his name is Boogie. Um, <laughs> so Frank and Boogie have, have, have owned the house and controlled the house, and... Um, and have been following this very sound strategy of sort of shoring up their very unreliable and, and, and untrustworthy characters. So they've been shoring up their place within this newly formed but fragile alliance by essentially targeting, you know, two slightly weaker players 
um, uh, that are liked or d- and disliked to varying degrees, and just sort of targeting them and el- eliminating them for the basic purpose of proving to their alliance that they're not going to backdoor them, they're not going to betray them, at least not yet. So, um, and this has been, you know, like strategically in the big big picture of the gameplay, like a, a, a very smart strategy and entertaining its own right, but not a lot of surprises. By contrast, the week before was great drama because, you know, like Boogie, one of the great villains or anti-heroes, if you will, of, of, of Big Brother history, seemed toast, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or was it Frank? I don't know. But how they conspired to sort of like reverse their fortunes and convince people to, to not do what they wanted to do, which was basically get rid of them, <laughs> and how they and instead turned what seemed to be their inevitable demise into their ascendancy into the, 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 the power players of the house. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I mean like... What, what I mean, was great Big Brother drama. I mean, well, and, and like, you know, uh, uh, for, for listeners out there who've never seen Big Brother and, and think we're crazy. Like, the experience of watching this was literally like, you know, you're seeing these two people in a house who one of them is widely agreed to be the biggest threat and the other one is the most hated person in the house. Two people who, I mean, like, just seem so completely to be in the sniper scope of everybody, somehow turning it completely around, breaking up one alliance, forming a new alliance with people they've been going after just a couple weeks ago. I mean, it's, it really is, you know, this, this sort of, like, incredible power dynamic where everything can shift just like that and a lot of it just, just kind of comes down to what's called social game in reality TV, uh, you know, sort of vocabulary. But really, it's just sort of like people talking and, you know, can I, you know, can I convince you of this? You know, can I, you know, am am I conning you? Am I telling you the truth? I mean, these interesting sort of gradations of, you know, now that we've made an alliance, can we stick with this alliance? All this week, that new alliance seemed like it was about to fall in on itself. It really is kind of thrilling. I I like to, what you pointed out, um, Jeff, uh, you, you said something about this whole kind of notion of subverting these storylines and, you know, how, you know, to what extent is the setup for this week's storyline going to follow through or going to take a twist? Uh, over at um, the AV Club, uh, the writer Noel Murray recently wrote an interesting piece that was just kind of talking about reality TV show grammar and about how, you know, there's almost this sort of, this series of cliches now that most reality shows, particularly competition shows, operate on, where it's always like, here's the person who we've decided is going to be the villain for the year, here's the hero, this whole kind of sense of, you know, how these shows are edited to reflect a certain storyline. The great thing about Big Brother, I think, is because the editors are working so rapidly, very often, you know, they'll they'll sort of try to build someone up as as a hero and you know what actually winds up happening will will not reflect that sort of take on the material at all. I mean, this season I sort of feel like Frank has been set up all along as this sort of, you know, very kind of likable genial guy, but there's these weird little cracks forming now where he's he takes things very very much to heart and you know, he almost broke up the alliance entirely just because of this sort of vendetta he had against one particular player and it really it feels like in a sense, there's a tension 
between what the makers of Big Brother are trying to do and what the people in the show are actually doing that almost feels to me a little bit like, to get really grandiose here, the the magic of the creative process when you, as, as a writer, want your characters to go one way but you find that they kind of want to go a very different way. I should point out that I, I, I recap two episodes per week, so I may think about this show more than most people think about anything. <laughs> well, I mean, I think if you're a fan of Big Brother, it, it's, it's like a lot of things... Uh, in the realm of entertainment geekly, you you you, you think about it too much. So mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, I like you shouldn't feel too much shame there is, for overthinking Big Brother. Jeff, uh, Jeff, I believe that the tagline of, of, of Entertainment Geekly should be: "It's impossible to think too much about anything." That's um, very, very true. <laughs> I mean, the one thing that we're, 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 we're kind of cruising toward now in in, in the Big Brother narrative um, is how villains are emerging and people that, you know, you know the, the hateable personalities are pretty much identifying themselves. And, you know, Big Brother, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't assign to the category of hate-watching because, you know, we love the drama mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but successful seasons of Big Brother do hinge on personalities and, and, and characters, if you will, that we just hate, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, villains, if you will. Um, and we can't wait for the good guys, or, or as, are, are they, as they're ultimately revealed to be, the bland people, <laughs> <laughs> to, to vote out the villains and be liberated from these, these troublemaker, drama maker, deceitful devils. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and I, I love how these shows sucker us into that want of like, come on, vote them out, are you crazy? And then they finally vote them out, and then what do we complain about? Like, they're boring, and yes. everyone becomes revealed to be bland. And look, no one wants Boogie to win this thing again or be there at the end. That would kind of blow. At the same time, like, who gives a crap who wins this thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I have no kind of, like, I, I don't care about who actually wins this money. All I care about is really, really good TV. So, um, like, and the best version of TV at this point that I can foresee from this season of this show is for for, for, for Boogie to be a little devil in that house until the very end, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. There, is, there is something really interesting about the whole nature of reality TV, at least as it has sort of evolved in the last, in its first major decade, where it almost seems like the villains really are the heroes in, in, insofar as, you know, the, the people you genuinely feel invested in. It, it's, it's very rare, I think, in a reality TV show to find someone heroic, you know, or, or, or to find, you know, to find a character who does all the right things and that is somehow even remotely as exciting as the characters who do all the wrong things it's our vampire culture you know <laughs> like and and the bad guys in these shows are these vampires that just prey on you know the weak and the naive and they just suck them dry and ride them to the end you know mm-hmm. um, and uh you know it's 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 vampires. Exactly. Big Brother is America is the concluded is my ultimate conclusion about uh, that series. Oh, okay. Well, now Big Brother is political metaphor. <laughs> is that, is, is, are we now going to go there? Okay. So who's uh, who's President Obama and who's Mitt Romney? Um, Come on now. Come uh, on. Like, let's, let's bait the message board here. Let's just invite lots of vitriol our way. Come on, take a stand. All right. All right. I'm going to go with. Uh, no. Don't. 
don't, Darren. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, Mike Boogie is, uh, you know, the person who secretly pulls the strings of American politics. Um, oh, okay. So uh, it's about the people behind the people. Exactly. He's, he, he, he's, he's Dr. Doom, who I believe is a real-life personality. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's, let's leave. We'll leave politics alone for right now. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll get more into that as, as, as the election season becomes ever more dystopian with every passing week. Um, Jeff, I, th I think that about wraps us up with our summer obsessions. I, I, I'm, I'm excited for fall to start at this point, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I'm excited for fall, and I know that in the coming weeks we're going to talk more about um, the fall season of, of both movies and, uh, and television. Um, I think I'm even more excited for mid-season television, to be honest. A lot of the things that I'm super psyched about aren't, aren't breaking until early next year. But I know that you cannot wait for, for the um, special edition of Entertainment Geekly Last Resort uh, 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 Geek Out. Oh, viewer, oh, uh, listeners out there, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself with, with the show Last Resort, but uh, I saw the pilot, and boy, that, there, is, there is a lot happening in that pilot, Jeff. I think, I think that's, that's okay to say, right? There's definitely quite a lot happening in that premiere. I, I think I, I, I lost count around the, the 30th main character that they introduced introduced in the first five minutes or so, but, uh, boy. I, I, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite kinds of things, which is that, you know, um, from a, a, a simple incident or not so simple incident, a whole storytelling world is born. And so this, this, this premise of this show in which, um, this, this, this nuclear sub like comes under attack, goes rogue, and then sets themselves up as its own like country on an island somewhere, um, and out of that decision, bang, a whole world of story takes, takes shape right before our eyes. And mm -hmm. be very, you know, like, we, we will talk more about this later, but yes, it's, it's Yes, yes, more, uh, more political metaphors. V listeners, start getting excited for all the new political metaphors we'll be, we'll be debating uh, in fall season come, of entertainment come the fall season. Like, you know, very, very political. <laughs> Man, I, 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 I hope not, but I, I feel that probably some of the things that we'll talk about, we won't be able to avoid it. <laughs> All right, well, listeners, uh, thanks, as always, for listening to this episode of Entertainment Geekly. As always, I'm Darren Franich. And I am the king of Jensonia. All hail the king of Jensonia. All hail. <laughs> bye, everyone. Uh, yeah, all right, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>